You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So I'm reminded each week that there are a number of you here in the room or listening in our online community who are new to this series. And if you are, we have been progressing through a series on God's design for sexuality. And um, knowing and appreciating that some of you are newer to this series, I want to just reset some things that we've already talked about and lay some foundation for where we're going to be going today. So first off, one of the things that we established right out of the gate with this series is that we all start out, apart from Christ, with a broken sexuality, that our deepest orientation is towards brokenness and is towards bentness, being bent inward, which leads to Selfishness leads to sin, leads to difficulty in our relationships. So we're all in the same boat when it comes to brokenness. We all start out there. But because of that, we have desires in all areas of our lives, especially in areas of sexuality, that need to be guided by God's word. And we are painfully aware of the reality that when we begin to talk about sexuality, we're getting very personal because our sexuality is a huge part of our identity. Therefore, our sexuality is profound, it's personal, it's intimate, it's significant, and we will continue to try to do our best to speak truthfully and openly and honestly and compassionately to these things that we all wrestle with. Because at the end of the day, our deepest identity is in who Jesus says we are. Our deepest identity is in Christ. Not what our culture says, not what our world says, not necessarily what other people say, but what he and his words say. And we will come back time and time again to anchor ourselves to that reality. But with where we're going today, I do want to define some terms. When we talk about heterosexuality today, I'm going to use the word straight. When we talk about homosexuality today, I'm going to use the word gay because those are the words and um, really the, the descriptors that are used in our culture. So that's the language that we're going to be using today. And as always, we want to orient you towards the resources that we have available to you. Throughout this series on the back resource table, we have a resource paper that really will link you to a variety of resources regarding sexuality. So we hope that you have picked up one of those if you haven't already. For today, we also have a same-sex response paper, specifically um, common responses to gay marriage. That is back there on the resource table as well because we're not really gonna go into those direct questions just for lack of time in what we're covering in the sermon. So we've tried to address as many of those as we can in that. We have position papers on the back resource table as well about marriage, remarriage, divorce, singleness. So we hope that uh, those are available to you and that you take advantage of those as well. We have a couple of our elders after the service who will be out at a lobby information table just as we have every Sunday that we've been progressing through this series. And we've had our first discussion forum that's going on down the hallway right now in, the, in what we call the great room. If you miss that, it's okay because we have another one coming here on November 3rd. So we'll do another one to wrap up the series. Same place, same time, just, just down the hallway that Sunday. So we wanted to let you know about all those things. And now I'm gonna ask if you would take out your phone, just like I'm gonna do here, 
And for the benefit of our online community, I will spell this out. We're gonna have you type into your browser meet.ps forward slash Romans one because that's where we'd like you to post that's where we'd like you to post your questions um, that you have as we progress through these through this series. And like we've mentioned in previous weeks, what we will do at the end of the series here is we're going to take every single question that you have posted and form some type of bullet response to that, and then we will publish that and make that available for you. Now, in fairness, many of your questions, because we're talking about sexuality, are complicated. There are layers to them. There are nuances to the answers to those. And so I'd much rather have those conversations um, live, person to person. That's why we're doing these discussion forums. But we will do a, a bulleted, concise written response to all of them by the end of the series. So that's what we're looking at here for today. So yesterday, I um, went to the men's breakfast that Bob was referencing. It was a fantastic time. Guys, I hope the next one we do, that those of you who weren't able to be there will make a point to be there. It was very significant. It was a great time. But after that breakfast, I decided to make a trip to some metro recycling. So I went to um, Mount Hood Community College, and they were taking unused chemicals, you know, paint, thinners, all that other stuff, and they were taking those off your hands if you were willing to wait in line for that. And so I chose to do that. I gathered up all of our old paint and all these old expired chemicals, and rather than throwing them in the landfill, I would much rather see those get disposed of in a much better way. So I waited for two hours yesterday in that line. Great chance to get caught up on emails and texts and phone calls with my phone. And when I got to the end of the line there and pulled up to the disposal site and they took my stuff off my hands, I felt like that was a good exchange. Two hours for seeing all that stuff go away. Good exchange. But let me, let me pose another scenario to you. So what, I, what if when I pulled up to that disposal site and I rolled down the window and began talking to the guy just like I had previously, I said, you know what? I'm not here to give you my chemicals. I'm here to take yours. For a hundred bucks, I'll take everything that you guys have gathered. I'd like to have it. Now, would that be a good exchange or a bad exchange? Well, reasonably so, you would say, what are you doing that for? Why do you want to now take into your possession these hazardous, toxic, dangerous chemicals? What are you doing? And in many ways, that is the tone of the passage in Romans chapter one and two that we're gonna look at today. I want you to watch for the series of exchanges that the Apostle Paul is going to be speaking to. And in each of those exchanges, something good is being exchanged for something that is broken. And his basic question throughout this whole passage will be, why in the world are you choosing to do that? So there is good news in this passage and bad news in this passage. Which would you like to have first? Well, we don't really have a choice because we're gonna follow the flow of the passage and we're gonna start with the good news for those of you who like that. And then it's gonna be bad news and then it's gonna end once again with 
good news. And the passage I'm referring to is Romans chapter one and two. So as we prepare to dive into this passage with your phone out, this is my question for you. In your browser at that address that I just gave you, I would like you to answer a poll for me. I wanna get a sense for where we're at here for those of us in the room. How many of you have ever heard a sermon about same-sex relationships? That is your poll question. So if you will look to your phone and give me a response to that. And again, that website in your browser is meet.ps forward slash Romans 1. So can we put those results up on the screen? Let's see where people are at. So 44% of you, 42, it's going back and forth, a little less than half say, yes, I have heard a sermon about same-sex relationships. And the majority of you, well over half of you, at least those of you in the room here, are saying, never heard a sermon on same-sex relationships. Well, the passage we're going to look at today isn't just about same-sex relationships, but it is going to go there as part of the passage. So yes, some of this sermon will be about same-sex relationships, but really, where this passage is going to go today is talking about all relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. So we're gonna dive right on into this. So we'll put this up on the screen. I'm gonna read it to you from my Bible and we're gonna progress our way through the beginning of this amazing letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church. And we're gonna start out with some incredibly good news when Paul says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, the non-Jew. So we're talking about everybody there. He goes on to say, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, as it is written the righteous will live by faith. And that is a quotation from the Old Testament out of the book of Hosea. That is incredibly good news because part of what Paul is doing here is he is deliberately inoculating the Roman church and us against empty religion. And there are two primary messages that empty religion, which is propagated by our culture and false religions, two primary messages that will come at you and me. Here is the first. God is a God of love, which he is, But because God is a God of love, how you live your life, what you think, what you do, what you say, how you act, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. Because even if you wrong God or you wrong other people, it's okay. He's gonna forgive you anyway. Besides, you decide what's best. I mean, at the end of the day, what's right and wrong, as if anyone even has a right to say that's right or wrong, that's entirely up to you and it's all good. God will forgive you. God still loves you. Paul has some very direct words for that false message, that side of false religion. But he will also have equally direct words for the other side of false religion that says religion is about rules. Therefore, you need to be a good person person. 
Therefore, you better have a good resume. You better follow all of the rules. And at the end of the day, where that type of empty religion is going to lead you is one of two places. You're either going to end up where you divide the world into good people, you, and bad people, everybody else, and you're going to be smug, and you're going to look down your nose at other people, and you're going to be self-righteous, or you're never truly going to know if you're good enough. Are you really good enough? Good enough for God? And the irony between those two very opposite messages of false religion is this. They're both about you and not about God. In both examples, who you worship is you. In the first example, you only answer to you. In the second Example, God owes you. You're a good person, therefore he is obligated to quote-unquote let you into heaven. And what Paul is going to say unequivocally is they're both broken and they're both wrong. And this is now where he is going to go in the flow of the passage. So let's see what he has to say then with that in mind. We've heard the good news, now the rest of the news. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And it's super important to note real quickly that wrath is not the same as anger. We sometimes read this word of wrath and we project our definition into it of, okay, well, this is God losing his temper. This is this irrational burst of uncontrollable anger. No, the wrath of God is always the necessary, absolute right response of God to brokenness and to sin because he's also a holy God as well as a loving God. And so it goes on to say, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what he says earlier that I skipped over unintentionally was this, that the wickedness of people causes them to suppress the truth. And that's, that's very, very important. And when he talks about how they knew God, he's not saying they know God in right relationship personally. He's saying they know that there is a God. So what exactly is Paul communicating here? What he's saying is that everybody knows there is a God. This morning, on my way here, I deliberately drove through Persimmon, Do you know what's going on in Persimmon right now? And all over our countryside, the leaves are turning. And they are profoundly beautiful. In Persimmon, it's this row upon row of these red maples. They turn orange at first and and yellow somewhere in there and then they turn red and then they lose their leaves. But they are so profoundly beautiful. And what Paul is basically saying here is, yep, God made it that way. You see, creation gives us hints, gives us clues. I would even dare to say gives us proof that there is a creator God. That those leaves are not that color. The natural processes that are taking place are are by design, by an intelligent design, by a creator God. And Paul says, yep, and everybody can see that. And it's a whole other sermon for us to talk about 
more of the foundation for intelligent design. But I can tell you this, if you do your homework on the discipline of science, the early fathers of science, really the first men and women who were scientists, by and large were believers. They believed in the one true God and science was developed to try to understand what he has set into motion. But at the end of the day, Paul says, everyone knows there's a God. And therefore, in our brokenness, we suppress that knowledge of him. Now, this is a little counterintuitive, and I wrestled with this a little bit. Is it possible to suppress something you don't have? No. No, that presupposes that you are holding something down. Something is present, and you're holding it down. And again, that's the point here. Paul's saying, yeah, everyone knows there is a God, and everyone in their brokenness initially suppresses that knowledge of him in some way, shape, or form. I've talked to many atheists throughout my life, have some friends that are atheists, and there's an interesting commonality that I've seen run through many of the stories of atheists who eventually choose to become Jesus followers. And this is true for C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, A.H. Auden, and a number of other prominent atheists who at some point in their spiritual journey chose to believe, yes, there is a God, chose to believe in the one true God, chose to enter into right relationship through inviting Jesus Christ into their lives, and they all have the same element to their story, and here it is. There isn't a single occasion where they could say it was this scientific discovery that was the tipping point for me. It was driving down persimmon and seeing the change in the leaves that was the tipping point for me to know there was a God. No, what they all say, and maybe this isn't true for every atheistic person's journey, but it's true for those I just quoted to you, they all said, I always knew there was a God. I was just wanting to live my life without him. And the tipping point for me was to realize what I'd always known. It wasn't that I truly didn't think there was a God. It was if there was a God, then I'd have to do something with him. And I choose not to believe that. What Paul would say in response to this is, yep, that's exactly what I'm asserting. Everyone knows there is a God. And they suppress that knowledge of him in their brokenness. So he's going to go on now in the progression of what he's talking about here. For although they knew God, knew about him, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Whew. And now watch for the exchanges that are gonna to begin to take place that we referenced. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So he's describing here, in brokenness, people exchange the creator for the created. And this has lots of different looks. Yes, throughout history, people have literally created little idols and said, that's now my God. We read about that a lot in the Old Testament and the New. But that's not the only way we choose to trade knowing this God personally for something that's broken. We create other gods by worshiping the God of injustice. We're apathetic, we're indifferent, we don't care about the brokenness in our world. 
That's a form of worship, actually, a worship of self. We take good things in our lives, like exhibit A, our sexuality, and we choose to live that out in broken ways. That's making ourselves a God. That's exchanging something good for something broken. And this has so many different looks, but in some way, shape, or form, apart from Jesus Christ and right relationship with him, we do this. And ultimately, what it comes down to is we end up worshiping ourselves. And now here comes Paul's progression of thought. And one of the first places our brokenness will begin to show itself in our lives is in our sexuality. It's one of the first places brokenness begins to rear its ugly head. And so what he will go on to assert is this. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And what does he say here? He asserts that all of us exchange the truth of God for lies in our brokenness. And he talks about this reality of being given over. And we need to talk about that for just a minute. For God to give you or me or anyone over to their brokenness is not a place any one of us ever want to be. I've heard it described as a raft that we all get in. And please understand, every illustration has its issues and doesn't fully capture it, but I think this helps. It's like a raft that we all choose to get into on this very dangerous river that is headed towards whitewater that is going to take our lives, and we know it. And yet we still choose to get in that raft and to go down that river towards that brokenness and really ultimately towards our death. And God, in giving us over to our brokenness, lets go of the raft and lets the current take us as an act of judgment. But I don't think that's fully what Paul is saying here. He doesn't just let go of the raft, he guides the raft towards our eventual destruction. How can God do that? Because time and time again, because we all know there is a God, because we all suppress the truth about him, because we exchange what we know to be true for lies, he comes at us again and again in his grace, gives us multiple, multiple chances to turn away from that brokenness, what the Bible calls repent, and to choose to follow him, to love him, to trust and obey him. And time and time again, he comes to us in our brokenness, and time and time again, we say, no, not interested, no, no, go away, no, no, no. Finally, he gives us what we want. You want to make life all about you? You want to make life all about your brokenness and sinfulness? Then the second to the last act of judgment by God is to give you exactly what you want. My friends, at the end of the day, that's what hell is. God giving people what they ultimately say they want is to be away from him, to be fully immersed in their brokenness and in their pain. Who in the world would go for that kind of an exchange? Well, we all start out there in our brokenness. And the last act of judgment by God is condemnation. 
is eternal separation from him. None of us want to go there. And man, there is a weight to this passage, to be sure. This is heavy stuff. Man, this is bad news. That we all gravitate towards brokenness. But the, but the good news in this, and Paul's going to get to this, is that God seemingly has unlimited patience for those who are wrestling with him, struggling to believe, trying to believe, even doubting, but he has limited patience for those who will not believe. Because you see, unbelief is not the absence of something, it is the presence of something. It is the attitude that says, and excuse the attitude, but this is what unbelief is. Screw you, God. I'm doing this on my own. God has limited patience for that. Unlimited patience for those who will struggle and wrestle and consider. And this is what Paul is talking about, but the progression isn't done. He's gonna go on here, and this is what he's gonna say. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Boy, is there a lot here. And what is he asserting? That because our brokenness tends to show itself in one of the first places of our lives with our sexuality, the reality is we all pursue disordered, broken desires, not just sexual desires, but all kinds of desires in our life. And Gary talked about this last week. So much of sin is hijacked goodness. We take a good thing and instead we make it a broken thing because we abuse it, we distort it, we use it for selfish ends or selfish means. And Paul's saying, yeah, that's exactly the point here. But there's no getting around what he says here. He says the primary example that he's using for sexual brokenness here is gay relationships. Now let's unpack some of this together. Even among scholars who will look to a passage like this and use it to support gay relationships, either gay marriage or gay relationships without marriage, everyone agrees and recognizes that what Paul is doing here is exactly what Jesus did when we looked at Matthew 19 a couple weeks ago, when the religious leaders were trying to draw Jesus into a cultural debate about divorce, and he said, let me take you back to the beginning. And remember, he takes them back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It is pretty much without dispute. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He literally is using the same language in the Greek language that is used to describe Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He is literally going back just like Jesus did, just like Moses did, just like the Bible does from Genesis to Revelation and reaches back to Genesis and says, look gang, the only God-ordained, God-created, God-blessed, sexualized relationship is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. And that is the backdrop for what Paul is saying here. So the word natural, which in fairness is debated, especially by those who are trying to affirm and trying to say that, yes, God does support gay relationships, 
The word natural here doesn't mean sexual desires. It means God's design. And that's exactly what this is referring back to. So therefore, this is speaking to every kind of gay relationship, not just gay marriage, but also gay relationships that are sexualized without marriage. This is unequivocally saying this is a primary example of sexual brokenness. I know that's hard to hear. And as we talked about in the very beginning of this series and our time today, this is not an us and them. This is about us. These are not issues. These are people we love. This may even be talking directly to you. But this is God's truth. But let's talk about what this isn't saying. This is not saying that gay relationships are the unforgivable sin. Unfortunately, the capital C church, the larger church, has sometimes said that and asserted that. And that's simply not true. This is also not saying this is the greatest sin. Wait till you see what's about to follow with the other things that Paul is going to talk about here. And this is not saying this is the worst sexual sin. But Paul is singling this out to be a primary example of sexual brokenness here. But isn't it interesting that he talks about actions but not attractions? Which then begs the question, is it sinful, is it broken to have same-sex attraction? And this is being debated right now in church circles. And I will tell you what I personally believe and from our conversations as a preaching team, I think this is representative of our preaching team as well, but I personally do not believe it is sinful to have same-sex attraction, and this is why. Number one, Paul's talking about actions here. He's not talking about attraction. Number two, as we talked about last week with Gary, we all have disordered desires. So if that is true, then let's apply it directly to this. Is it wrong, is it broken to want to have close same-sex relationships? Uh, No, because what do we call that? Friendship. Of course we should have close, intimate, same-sex relationships. But as Gary pointed out last week, where that becomes a problem is when we sexualize that. When we bring sex into that. It ruins the relationship in God's design. Because again, the only God-ordained, God-created, God-blessed, sexualized relationship is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. Everything else outside of that is broken and sinful. And we're exchanging something that was intended to be good for something that is broken. And that's exactly Paul's point here. But he doesn't stop here. He goes on, and look what he goes on to say when it comes to all of our brokenness. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they might do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips 
slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, they approve of those who practice them. Everyone is sinful and broken apart from right relationship with God. My friends, please hear this very clearly. God did not, through the Holy Spirit, inspire the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Roman church and to us through thousands of years of time to exclusively condemn gay relationships. He isn't condemning gay people. He's condemning all people with what he is saying here. Because now he is about to speak to religious people. And he's gonna do so very directly and very pointedly, and this is what he's gonna say. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgments against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Frankly speaking, in the eyes of some, probably a number in our culture, we've just committed two cultural sins when it comes to inclusiveness and when it comes to how our culture defines tolerance. And yet, Isn't God's word far more inclusive than any other culture that we've ever known? Aren't we all in the same boat? Don't we all start out broken and selfish and sinful apart from right relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Isn't that everybody? None of us can look down our nose at someone else. That's part of Paul's point here. We're all broken apart from Christ. That's pretty inclusive. All is everybody. No one's being singled out here. We're all broken apart from Christ. And when it comes to tolerance, our culture says and defines tolerance as, well, you know, it's okay. What everyone thinks, what everyone does is okay for them. And we just need to be, you know, accepting of that, whatever that choice looks like. But that is a very anemic understanding of tolerance and really a very anemic devalued understanding of what it means to love someone. Because this God loves us so much, he will not share us with brokenness. He will not share you with anything that will take advantage of you, abuse you, wrong you, or devalue you. And frankly, I wanna be loved by a God like that. Because anything else that is less than that isn't truly Love, and once again, that's the point here. God loves us so much, he wants to rescue us from brokenness, not endorse it, applaud it, or encourage it. And in your heart of hearts, as you do business with what we're talking about here, at the end of the day, I would submit to you, that's the way you wanna be loved. You don't want a God who will share you with brokenness, share you with choices or things that hurt you that wrong you, that abuse you and take advantage of you and devalue you. 
Man, that's, that's the hope of the gospel. So at the end of the day, we all need to repent and find our deepest identity in Christ. Your identity and mine is not in what our culture says. It's not even in what other people say. It's what God says about us. And once again, just like God, when he came to Adam and Eve after they had sinned against him and wronged him and wronged each other as they were hiding from each other and hiding from him, mired in guilt and shame, even knowing physically where they were, he comes to them and what does he say? Where are you? When I was hiding from my dad under the porch when he knew exactly where I was as I was eating my dog biscuits and soy sauce, what did my dad say? Where are you? And once again, God comes to you this morning and he asks, where are you? What are you believing? What is your identity? What is the narrative that you are buying into? And why are you settling for brokenness when you can have my blessing? When you can have what I promise you? And by the way, just in case you've forgotten, I always keep my promises. I always do what I say I will do. And so my friends, this is our story. And I wanna leave you with a story from someone who I know quite well who calls Grace home. And I'm just gonna give you a forewarning. This is very gritty. This is very authentic. And it's very real, but it's also very hopeful. The story goes like this. My father wasn't around much when I was young. Without him, I spent most of my time with my mom and two sisters. My mom did the best she could to raise three young kids, but there are some things that only a dad can give, and I found myself longing from an early age for a connection with a significant male in my life. So as a young boy, I would idealize my male friends, wanting their love and approval so much, it almost hurt. And by the time I got into middle school, idealization had turned into attraction. So when my friends started noticing the cute girl in our first period class, I found myself much more prone to notice the cute boy. At first I was confused and tried to deny the feelings I was having. Being straight is a choice, the eighth grader in me would say to myself as I walked to school, and that's the choice I'm going to make. But the older I got, the clearer it became that these feelings weren't a choice, that no matter how much willpower I had, no matter how much I prayed for them to stop, they weren't going to go away on their own. So as I entered my 20s, confusion turned into despair as I started to process the implications of these feelings. I remember listening to a song on the radio where the singer sings to her lover about the bad day she's having, and in the refrain, she celebrates that no matter how bad her day has been, coming home to her lover will make her feel better. And as I thought about my attraction to other men, I began to wonder if I would ever have someone in my life I could come home to every day who would cheer me up when I was feeling down, who would hold me through hard times. It was hard to imagine getting married, but the thought of living alone was almost too painful to bear, and I started to wonder if suicide was a necessary option. And at that point, I realized it was time to seek out help, and so I pursued counseling. And what I discovered there was simple but powerful. I looked back on my life and realized that the thing I was longing for wasn't sex per se, but something much, much deeper, masculine love 
connection, affirmation. And when I had gotten to middle school and had not found these things, these deep, unfulfilled longings became sexualized. In its proper context, sexuality can be a powerful expression of these things, but it's not necessary for them. And outside of its proper context, sex can actually be a cheap substitute. My counselor encouraged me to foster a safe community of solid, same-sex friendships, men I refused to idealize, but who would be there to give me encouragement and affirmation when I needed it. And as I followed that advice, I found that my attractions lost the edge of their intensity. I still experience attraction to other men, and I probably always will. But the attractions no longer lead me to despair like I once did. The despair came from a worry that I would not ever have human connection. And I have found that human connection is possible irrespective of whether you get married or not. The deepest longings of every human heart are for connection, approval, love, a compliment given at just the right time, an ear that listens when you're feeling down, people who reach out when they haven't heard from you in a while just to know how you're doing. These are the things that have changed my life. And they are, in my last analysis, Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds. If you struggle with same-sex attraction this morning, my message to you is simple. Life doesn't have to be lonely or helpless or hopeless. But the answers are not found in cheap platitudes like pray the gay away or you were born that way so just accept it. Disordered affections are a sign of brokenness. But rather than patching over our brokenness on one hand or embracing it in the other, Jesus calls us to come to him and exchange our brokenness for his righteousness and his hope. And I pray that you will do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, apart from you, am a broken man in desperate need of your grace and your love and your truth. And that is true for every single person listening to this here in the room or in our online community. We all start out in the same place. We're all broken. And yet, God, you see us in our brokenness and you choose to pursue us. You choose to draw near and to take our shame and our guilt away and to give us a new identity, a new hope, a new life by changing us from the inside out through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your very presence in us. And so God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we now choose to celebrate that hope by singing to you, by reflecting on the power and reality of your word and by living out what it is that you say about us our true identity in you. Thank you that there is power for redemption in your name and through your spirit. And we proclaim that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you believe that. Because you and I don't have to settle for brokenness in any area of our lives, in our sexuality, in any part. And it really does come down to who you really are, who God says your identity is. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe our culture? Are you going to believe what other people say? Or are you going to believe what he says and what his word declares? And some of you might say, boy, I just, I don't know that I'm buying it. I don't know that I believe what God's word says. You just put your finger on the problem with your honesty. 
And we've all been there. I've been there in my own life. Ah, boy, I'm, I'm not sure I believe that. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. This is a safe place to be in process in any area of your life. It's okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. God will not share you and I with brokenness. And if you were settling for that, you really are settling. And you are so missing out on the blessing of God, which he so badly wants to give you if you and I will let him. So I hope that you believe what you just sung. And I hope that you believe this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First, the Jew and then the non-Jew, the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be like my friend and you have these feelings you don't know what to do with or whatever you're up against in your life. You don't have to do it alone. We're here. We're church, we're community, we're family, and we're here for each other. And I want to pray his blessing over you now as we go from here. God, we are not ashamed of your gospel. It is the power for salvation. You save us from brokenness and you save us to life and to blessing. Would we believe that for every area of our lives, especially our sexuality? And so as we go from here, God, would we anchor ourselves once again to what you say about us, to who you say we are. And God, would we live out the power and life change of the gospel through the power of your Holy Spirit. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So we hope to see you next week. Go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.